to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, well, hey, good morning, Watermark family. My name is David Marvin. I direct the porch here on Tuesday nights and I'm so excited to get to wrap up this letter of 1 Corinthians. Last week, we covered chapter 14, and if you are playing along at home, you would think that this week would be 15, but we're actually gonna do chapter 16 because at Easter, we covered chapter 15, specifically TA. If you missed that message, I would highly encourage you to go hear that. It's one a great message, and it'll give you context for where we're gonna go tonight as we wrap up this letter. I'm gonna read the final chapter of Corinthians, and as I do, we're gonna really focus on two verses, but here's what you need to know. It was a letter written by Paul, delivered by Timothy to the church in Corinth. And just like any letter that someone in your life would write to you, if they're closing out the letter, there's gonna be some specific ways that they just kind of address their personal plans or just life. Like if your mom was to write you a letter and say, uh, hey, this has all been great, and hopefully we'll come see you soon, and you know, the winner's here, and give Sheila my best, and that's kind of what Paul's gonna do in this final chapter, and then there's some really powerful and applicable truths I wanna hone in that are as relevant to us as they were to the church in Corinth. So this is chapter 16, starting verse one. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put aside and store up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. He says, hey, basically, I'm gonna collect an offering, that's what we're doing. When I arrive, I'll send it with whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should also go, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia or Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go, that's what I mean. He's saying, I'm gonna come see you guys, maybe I'll stay for the winter, Christmas in Corinth, that sounds great. For I do not want to see you just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a wide door for effective work is open to me. And there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you. For he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace so that he may return to me, for I'm expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to come visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has the opportunity. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. And then Paul refers to a few more members of the church in Corinth. Now I urge you, brothers, that you know the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Acacia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to these, be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer for the gospel. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus. There's a name you don't hear very often. Bring that one back. And Acacius, because they have made up for your absence. Basically, some people that came from the church to visit Paul. They refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches in Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca together with the house, 
with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers and sisters send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy handshake. And I, Paul, (laughs) write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let me ask a question to start. As I said, I want to focus on two particular verses. But to set up and really recap some of the book, anyone know who the most successful recording artist of all time is? Now, there's going to be a lot of different opinions or maybe ideas about who that is. And let me give a hint by way of one of their songs. Here's one of them you may recognize. You ain't nothing but a If you don't recognize that one, maybe you will recognize this one. And it, of course, is... Really? No one knows who that is? (laughs) Anyone? Elvis Presley, okay. If you're under 25, you may actually not know who that is, but Elvis Presley, I didn't realize this, is by far the most successful recording artist of all time. Like, you would have thought, you know, is T-Swift up there, or is Drake, or even Michael Jackson. In terms of the single artist most successful of all time, it is Elvis. Elvis sold over a billion records. He still has the top records for most 40 hits. He had 53 top 40 albums. He was so iconic and culturally relevant. He also appeared in 31 films. One of his films was watched by more people than the number of people who watched the first man land on the moon. It was said that he transformed society. The 60s launched from him. One composer from the day said, Elvis changed everything. Music, language, clothes. It was a whole new social revolution. And if you were alive during that time, you maybe remember just the impact that some of us who weren't around or didn't know this figure had, this person that was so culturally iconic. But what is also interesting about Elvis is he was also sadly kind of a train wreck. He had really interesting relational problems with his wife where, you know, after they gave birth to their daughter, he refused to sleep with her. He had different affairs. He just had, despite being such a culturally influential, iconic figure, some real issues. Eventually, he developed an addiction to prescription pills and had prescriptions in the thousands. And as you may or may not know, tragically, died alone at the age of 42. And this person who was so incredibly influential, iconic, people knew was also a train wreck, tragically. Now, what does that have to do with the church in Corinth? Well, in a very similar way, the church in Corinth was in perhaps one of the most culturally influential, iconic locations of the day. And they also were kind of a train wreck. And Paul is writing this letter to help them know what it looks like to be God's people and to address the issues that were existing despite them being culturally influential and existing in the city of Corinth, which was tremendously iconic, how they could be God's people and not be a train wreck. Why do I say Corinth was such an iconic city? It was the third biggest city in the Roman Empire, behind Rome and behind Alexandria. 
It was also arguably the wealthiest city in the Roman Empire. And this is kind of historical, but it paints a picture of what was happening in that day. They were a port city that had a port on either side. It was an isthmus, basically this land strip where Corinth was located, where they would have ships that would bring merchant in, and then they would ships, have ships on the other side that would bring merchant out. And so it allowed people to gain tremendous wealth. Most of society at that time had pretty fixed income or fixed access to resources and wealth. If you were born rich, that generally stayed the same. If you were born poor, there wasn't a ladder to climb except in Corinth. And they would come through and charge tolls on these people. But it wasn't just a wealthy city, it was also a place that was known for its sexual, sexual perverseness. That it was home to the temple of Aphrodite, who's the goddess of sex, love, beauty, and that was serviced by a thousand prostitutes. And so when Paul's addressing these people and he's talking about temples and he's talking about sexuality, he's addressing people who had, when he brings up prostitutes in chapter six, who had gone to the temple of Aphrodite, which was by far the largest prostitution temple in the Roman world. It was so synonymous with sexuality that Plato would write that to call a Corinthian or call a girl a Corinthian was slang for calling her a prostitute. In other words, if you wanna throw a dig, or throw shade at somebody, and you didn't like a girl someone was dating, you would say, man, bro, she's like a Corinthian. And that was how you would say she was someone that didn't have morals. And we see Paul attempting to address this train wreck all throughout the letter. It's a church Paul loved. Next to Ephesus, he spent more time in Corinth than any other place. And he writes more to the church in Corinth between the two letters that we have and the two that we don't than any other church in the New Testament. Because his heart was, man, I want you to know, despite being in this world famous city, iconic location, culturally influential town, how you can be God's people and face all the temptations that you're facing. And he writes and gives instructions, specifically in chapter 16, that had they done them, had they followed these two things or these two verses we're gonna look at, would have prevented so much of the train wreck that is been covered the last 15 chapters. And what do I mean by that? In chapter three, he covers how there's divisions inside of the church. In chapter five, he brings up that there is incest, sexual incest taking place inside of the church in Corinth where a man is sleeping with his father's wife. I mean, stuff that Paul even says, man, the pagan world is like, that's great. I'm talking Jerry Springer, next level, that's crazy. And that's what's happening. Men were sleeping with prostitutes, but not with their wives. Chapter six, Church members suing each other in pagan courts. People getting drunk on communion, which is comical in our day because how many of those little cups would that take? And he's going, what are y'all doing? He writes and says, you're fighting over spiritual gifts and preferring one another. And then in chapter 15, you're denying the resurrection. And so Paul lays out, hey, these are the principles that if you will live by them, they will protect you and allow you to be God's people. And they're the same principles that are relevant to us, both as a church in general and personally in our own lives. So I wanna walk through verses 13 and 14 and talk about standing firm in a fallen world. So let me read those verses again. I'm gonna read them really each of the four points as we go through this for the next 25 minutes. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done 
and love. So the first thing, be watchful. What does Paul mean? Does he just mean be you know, constantly on the look and walking around as you look? Or is he saying something else? Clearly he's saying something else. He's saying, I want you to pay close attention to your life, to your behaviors, to the beliefs and the behaviors existing in you and inside of the church. In other words, the Corinthians were not being watchful or staying on guard as it related to their beliefs and their behaviors. They were seeing sexual sin, as many still see it today. It's not that big of a deal. It's just a prostitute. Sex is just physical. Pornography is not that big of a deal. They were basing their behaviors on a denial of the resurrection. They were having infights, and Paul's saying, hey, you need to make sure that you are on guard. To us, you would say the same thing, that you are to watch your heart and your habits because there's an enemy called sinful nature that comes from within you, and there's an enemy outside of you called Satan who is looking to destroy everything about your life. If Paul was sitting across the table for you, he would say, you need to be on guard. There is an enemy who wants to destroy your family. He wants to destroy your marriage. He wants you to live this entire life and focus it on the American dream and forfeit, experiencing your purpose in Christ. Peter would say in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, be alert and of sober mind. You have an enemy, the devil, that prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. The Bible over and over teaches there's an enemy who hates you. He hates anything godly and anything good in your life. He hates your marriage. He wants you to continue to hold bitterness against the family member who really hurts you. He wants you to be covered in anxiety about how your kids are doing. He wants you to live in isolation and not open up with your community group. He wants your marriage to fall apart. He wants you to think it's not that big of a deal. It's just a few drinks. It's just a click in a website. And he wants to do anything and everything that he can to erode anything good in your life. He wants you to get pregnant and convince yourself abortion is a solution. He wants you to not pray for, care for, pursue your kids or your spouse. He wants you to be so busy, you really can't be a part of a community or a part of a local church. Sometimes it's not even bad. He just wants you to distract you from experiencing God's plan for your life. In Ephesians chapter six, Paul would say he has schemes it's the same word for tricks, that he is seeking to take you out. Now the question is, how? You know, in each of our lives. And my guess is, if you were sitting there and you asked yourself, man, if I was Satan, how would I take myself out? Like, do you know how and in which ways you should be watchful? If he was gonna take out your marriage, how would he do it? Through some interactions and maybe an emotional relationship at work that has drifted beyond what's appropriate that could lead to a place where your marriage is not where you or her, your wife or husband want it to be? Would it be through your commitment to providing for your family being so great and taking up so much time that your presence with your family, which is the most important thing you can give them, you're no longer doing? I don't know what it is for you I know that in my own life, I need to know and I need to have community around me know, hey, here's the ways that Satan will tempt or could be tempting and could discourage, make me discontent, is tempting and I'm tempted to feed it. And Paul would say, be watchful, the thing that they were not doing. 
The word for Satan comes from a, a root word of adversary, and it means to hide an ambush, that he is seeking to ambush you and I. Now, as Christians, we live in the tension where greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is now at work in those who believe to bring about God's will in our life. And so despite the fact that there is an enemy that is seeking to devour, we know and say the victory ultimately is Christ and we can rest in that. But Paul would say to the church in Corinth, he did say and he would say to us, but you still need to be on guard. There's an enemy seeking to take you out. He has been defeated by Christ on the cross and has a fatal blow and will once and finally be dealt with eventually. But in this day, he is still seeking to take as many out as he can. I have a friend who pastors a church in Austin and a member of their congregation went on a safari hunt or went hunting and hunting for lions. And while they were in Africa, he had a guide and they were basically going and uh, tracking to hunt a lion. Eventually they found one and the guide directed him to take the shot. He took the shot and it hit the lion, but it wasn't a immediate kill. It didn't knock him over. The lion hit and then he took off. And they began to track him and they had the tracks and they're walking and now they have a trail of blood. And so they're following the trail and they're following the tracks and they eventually find the tracks, it's like they ran out. Where could he have gone? So they continue looking around and trying to find him and then all of a sudden they're walking and the guide grabs his hand and says, give me the gun. And they turn around and the lion was behind them. And the guide was not taking any chances on this Austin, Texas homeboy making the final shot. And he takes the gun and he shoots the lion that was charging at them. Despite the fact that the lion had been dealt a fatal blow. And despite the fact that they thought they were the hunters, they were being hunted. And the same is true for you and me, is that there's an enemy who's seeking to do anything and everything that he can to destroy what is good in your life, to erode the relationship that you have with your kids, to keep you from being a light at your work. And so Paul says, be watchful. The second thing he says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all you do be done in love. Stand firm in the faith. This is the second thing. In Corinth, they were not standing firm. They were suing each other in pagan courts, tolerating sexual perversion, fighting over whose leadership to follow. And Paul is saying, you are to stand firm in the faith, in that culture around you. That he's implying that it requires you and I being intentional. Man, I'm gonna stand firm on the word of God. I'm gonna stand firm in a culture that's gonna push against me. In other words, it's like this. My kids, every summer, we do a family staycation and we stay at the Hilton Anatole, which is a hotel here in town. And at the Hilton Anatole, they have an outdoor water park. Uh, it's not the largest thing ever, but it exists and it's great. And when you're five, it's, you know, greatest thing in the world. So we go there every summer, and my son, who's six, 
And my daughter, who's four in particular, love the lazy river. I mean, we'll just get on that. And they want to go around and around and around to the point where, as a parent, you're like, okay, I'm getting dizzy. We have gone way too, we've gone 75 times around the lazy river. Let's go do something else. But they just love it because they pick their feet up and it just directs them. Paul is saying, if you're not intentional to make sure I'm going to not compromise in these ways, I am deciding beforehand, I'm not gonna do that. If you just pick your feet up and don't make the decision to stand firm, like a lazy river will push you along, the culture around you will push you along in how you think, how you make decisions, how you make purchases, where you live, what success is, and he's saying, you've gotta make the decision. I am going to define what success is, I'm gonna decide how I'm gonna live my life, from the word of God, I am making the decision. I will not compromise. I'm not gonna compromise when it comes to that work trip and that happy hour or going to different locations just because it'll help the business grow or being in environments where things that God died for on the cross are being celebrated. I'm not gonna compromise when it comes to being honest with my clients. I'm making the decision. I'm not gonna compromise and allow life to get so busy that I can't be connected and plugged into a local church. Maybe you're a teacher. It's making the decision, I'm not gonna compromise when it comes to what I'm going to teach my children if it contradicts my faith. I'm not gonna compromise when it comes to embracing what the culture says about what marriage is, about gender. I'm not gonna compromise, maybe this is as relevant to this room as any of them. When it comes to, in the name of providing for my family, not being present with my family. Let me say this. I've been working with young adults for 13 years. And in that time, I've had a lot of conversations and had a lot of chances to hear about young adults and in particular often the challenges they face growing up. In all of those conversations, I have never once heard the person complain over, you know what my biggest struggles are? When I was growing up, my dad never took me to the Bahamas. I didn't get a Range Rover when I turned 16. I didn't live in the nicest area of town. He was always home and always at my sporting events and he was always caring for me and my family. I've never heard it but I have heard story after story after story of people who said, man, my dad, we had everything that you would want except him. And it's making the decision, I'm not gonna sacrifice my family on the altar of providing for my family. And Paul is saying, man, stand firm, in a world that is gonna seek to push you. How do we know where to stand firm? Well, the Bible says that it's by knowing and applying God's word that we stand firm in the culture. Psalm one says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. But in verse two, his delight is in the law of the Lord. He meditates on God's word day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither. He says it's like a tree and a tree that's by a stream of water, which means its roots go deep into that water and they're strong so that when life and challenges come or when culture and the world around you is 
pushing up against you, it is going to stand firm. That man who meditates, knows, studies, applies God's word is able to stand firm. In 2019, I'd gotten home, it was summer of 2019, I'd taken uh, some of our porch leaders and volunteers on a retreat and we were gone for the weekend and so I came home and basically told my wife, hey, you've been with the kids all weekend, you go do whatever you wanna do, I got the kids, husband of the year, here we go. So I take the kids, she goes out shopping or whatever and uh, about 45 minutes later, a storm hits that if you were around that summer, you would have remembered, I mean, it was hail was going everywhere, wind, it was like we were in a tornado, it felt like. And about eight minutes later, very quickly, it was over. And I went outside to just see if there was you know, any damage or anything, and here's one of the pictures that was in our front yard. That just trees had just to the ground. And I walked out and I looked down the street and I see it's not just our house, I mean this was all over the local area. The storm had come through and just tree after tree after tree had fallen. I called my wife and I was like, where are you, are you okay? And she was like, what are you talking about? She had been in Old Navy's changing room and missed the entire thing. <laughs> Classic, always in the changing room. Anyway, so, and I bring that up to say, when you think about all those different trees, the ones that stood standing had one thing that the trees that fell didn't. The roots were able to hold. And the scripture says the way you and I stand firm as men and women of God and as a church in general is by having roots that are able to hold because they're anchored deeply in the word of God that informs how we think about life in general. And Paul says stand firm in the faith. Next instruction is be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Third thing, act like men, be strong. Now immediately this verse feels like, wait a second, act like men be strong. Women can be strong. Is that, what are you trying to say, Paul? Women absolutely can be strong. And in fact, one of our elders, Mickey, has said before a line I think is so good of like, men may be physically stronger, but women are tougher. And having watched my wife give birth to three babies, I am confident that is the case. If men had to give birth to children, the human race would have gone extinct long, long ago. <laughs> but Paul is saying in particular to these men, hey, you need to act like men be strong. Let everything you do be done in love. Your translation may have be courageous because Paul is saying, hey, use your strength in order to serve and sacrifice. Our culture has kind of a weird you know, perspective and flawed perspective on masculinity where it's either, hey, a man is somebody who's so macho and just hear me roar and this is my bench press and I'll crush stuff on my head and no emotion ever and don't cry and art is for you know, sissies all of which is a flawed perspective. In fact, it's not even biblical. King David was very artistic, cried more tears in one place that he said, I've ran out of tears to cry. So if you, imbi or if you buy that perspective on what it means to be a man, you're picking a fight with King David. And let me just say, if I have to choose between whoever you are and King David, I'm taking David every time. In 1 Samuel 17, it says that he killed a lion with his bare hands. I don't care how much CrossFit you do, you are not taking on. <laughs> King David. And so it's flawed to think it's this macho, and then it's also flawed because now, even more prevalent probably, is this kind of gender doesn't exist, and men and women are the same, which is also not biblical. And in our culture that encourages women to act like men or men to act like women, the Bible encourages men to act like Jesus and to be strong. 
and to use their strength not to advance themselves, but to serve and sacrifice courageously for the benefit of others. So to the men in his church or in Corinth, he would say, same to us. This means having the strength to serve and sacrifice in your hus- as a husband for those of us who are married. To follow Ephesians chapter five, I'm gonna lay down my life for my wife like Christ laid down his life for me. Which is one of the most convicting verses, I think, as a husband in the New Testament. That the constant call for you and me is to die to self in order to serve as fathers, to care and protect those that we raise, that our children, that for most of us, the most important thing in our lives will not be something we do or something we achieve, it will be the someones that we raise. And Paul says, use that strength for the sake of your family, for the sake of your marriage, for the sake of our world, and be strong and serve and sacrifice for the sake of others. As singles, it still is the same instruction. Man, I'm gonna serve our church. I'm gonna serve our city. If you don't know how, and this is often, and you're not alone in terms of what does it look like to be God's man, we want to help connect the dots. And one way we're uniquely gonna do that, and so this is a side note if you're interested, is this fall, we're gonna provide an opportunity for older men and younger men to come together and to walk through what does God's word say about how do I be God's man? And we're gonna provide a chance to sit around and just talk about how do we strengthen ourselves as men, not for our own benefit, but to serve and to be like Jesus. And so we're gonna provide that starting in September. And if you're interested in being a part of that, either being in one of the groups or maybe helping lead one of the groups, I want you to write down this email address, ehoward at watermark.org, ehoward at watermark.org. Some of you all, maybe your kids have been gone in empty nesters for a while and you still have so much that younger men would benefit from hearing How do I be God's man? And so E. Howard at watermark.org, we're gonna walk through a curriculum called Better Man. If you're one of the ladies in the room, in addition to all the different amazing opportunities like women's Bible study, the collective coming up next Saturday, we're also in the works of providing something else. But this specifically is an opportunity that's gonna exist for the first time this fall. But Paul is saying, be strong, have the courage to serve and sacrifice. It's fascinating how much courage is so compelling and inspiring and attractive. I say that because the most successful movie, box office world hit of all time, is Avengers Endgame. Anybody seen Avengers Endgame in here? Okay, three of you, awesome. Well, I have not, I actually have not gotten to see the movie, but I was being told by somebody this week on uh, just the courageous moment at the very end where Thanos or Thanos, I don't know how to say it, don't email me, but Thanos is basically trying to conquer the world, and Iron Man sacrifices and lays down his life and dies. Clearly, I missed the plot or something. There's so much snickering going on here. That, uh, that he sacrifices, and 2.5 billion people would go see that. There's something that's inspiring about it, but it's not just inspiring. It's, it's a call for those of us who follow Jesus. There's a missionary in the 1800s to the island of Fiji named James Calvert who wrote and he basically was being dropped off at the island of Fiji where there were cannibals that existed, this tribe on the island. And when he got to the island, the captain of the ship tried to get him to turn back and he said to him, you will die 
If you stay here, you will die. The men with you will die. Anyone on this island will die. And after a moment, Calvert replied, we died before we came here. We died to ambition, goals, dreams. We died to self and everything the self desires. We died so that Christ may live in and through us, that whatever we attempt within this missionary call of God would bring him glory and only him. We died before we came so there would be no hindrance, no barriers within ourselves to follow Christ into the areas of the world where there is a great darkness yearning for light. And Paul says, be strong, be courageous, stand firm. And finally, let everything you do be done in love. To this point, the previous commands were all military terms. And Paul introduces a, a new term. Let everything that you do be done in love. What does it mean to love? Well, what's helpful for the church in Corinth and for us is Paul just laid it out two chapters ago or three chapters ago in 1 Corinthians 13. We covered it a few weeks ago, the clearest depiction of love in the New Testament where Paul says, here's what I mean. Let everything you do be done in love. Oh, by the way, here's what love is. Everything you do be marked by patience, kindness. That to be marked by love means you do not envy, you do not boast. Not proud, it doesn't dishonor others. It's not self-seeking, self-seeking. If I dishonor others or I'm self-seeking, I'm not operating in love. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. It doesn't delight in evil, it rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. This was so at the heart of the New Testament that if you're familiar with the teachings of Jesus and Paul and just the letters in general, over and over and over it hammers what Christianity introduced, this new radical ethic of love. That because of God's love for humanity, Christians are now called to love what God loves, which is people and love one another. Jesus would say, this will be the defining characteristic that will showcase to the world that you're my followers. John chapter 13, he said, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples. If you love one another. Jesus would say, it's not gonna be how many Bible verses you know, how much you accomplish in your job. The world will know that you are my followers, but how you treat and love one another. My son, when he was four, played in the YMCA soccer league, which is an experience in itself. But while we were there, I coached the team and we showed up for a game and we had red jerseys. And when you're playing soccer with four-year-olds and five-year-olds, it's kind of chaos in general, where you just kind of want to direct them in one direction, that's our goal. But we showed up and the other team was also in red jerseys. And as I said, four-year-old soccer is chaotic enough or is like confusing enough, but when everyone looks the same, it, you're like, that's our goal down there. But all of a sudden, it's a sea of red. You're, it's very easy to go, all right, when do we get the juice boxes and is this over? Because everyone looked the same. And sadly, the jersey that is to be worn for Christians is one of love. And it's to look different from the world around us. And 
it can often be difficult, especially difficult when the church is not wearing that jersey. It's just you look like everybody else. And so many Christians or so many people are not attracted to the church because they look around and they just look like everybody else. They're not wearing the jersey of love. They're wearing the jersey of the world around them. And Paul says, let everything you do, what's unique and distinct and what should mark you as my people, is that you move and operate in love. So Paul says, man, stand firm in the faith. Be strong and use that strength to sacrifice for the good of others. And then be marked by the jersey of love. And you will be the people of God and be able to stand firm. What's remarkable, and I'm gonna close here, is that the church in the first century did these things. And we know what happened as a result of them doing so. It went from this small, tiny movement in the armpit of the Roman Empire, led by a Jewish peasant who had been a carpenter before, and exploded and went all over the world in a few short years. Even the persecution of the Roman Empire in places like Corinth and places like Jerusalem where they attempted to stomp out this new Christian cult movement was no match for when God's people said, we're gonna stand firm in truth. I'm gonna live in love and care for people. And they lived out these teachings and they saw it topple an empire. There's a picture I look at every single day on my desk. It's a picture my wife gave to me. And I'll explain why I look at it because it reminds me that there is no ends and no barrier to what God can do when his people say, I'm gonna stand firm in truth and I'm gonna live in love imperfectly, but I'm gonna seek to be God's people, live according to his word. I'm gonna be watchful in my life. I'm gonna be watchful with others around me and I'm gonna live according and I wanna use my strength to sacrifice and serve. I look at that picture because it's a picture of something within this building. This is the Roman Colosseum. Wonder of the ancient world at that time, when Paul's writing, gladiatorial games took place, it held 50,000 people, 76 gates, just like today, AT&T Stadium, different gates, you'd pull up your camel to the gate, there they are. Roman Empire had a single gate for the emperor at that time and a seat that the emperor would sit in and he would go in and sit in that seat and if you're not familiar, inside of this Colosseum would take place games that would end the life of thousands and thousands of people either fighting with one another or fighting with different animals, and then centurions would take the dead bodies and they'd drag the blood off of the street or off of the ground. Where Christians, by the thousands, would lose their life there in a Nero circus down the road. As they were persecuted for holding and trying to stand firm. And the picture that sits on my desk is this. It's a picture of a cross that sits where the emperor once sat declaring life or death over those participating in the games, over Christians who would be crucified outside of the city walls till they ran out of wood. And it's a picture of a cross, and it's not a cross representing crucifixion, the most brutal death sentence Rome could issue. It is a cross representing the love of God for the world, the single crucifixion of the savior of the world who would come in and give his life and rise again from the dead and anyone who accepts him as Lord and Savior will live forever with him in eternity. 
And his followers would take that message and they would go around despite being persecuted and they would stand firm and hold the truth. They would go around despite being attacked and killed and losing their lives, they would love and love the people around them. And they saw it explode everywhere. And the reason why that's so a reflection to me of there is no end to what God can do is imagine just if we got back in a time machine and we went back to the first century and we entered into the gates and we saw the crowds of thousands, 50,000 people sitting around. And we saw someone who had just recently lost their life and they're grieving over their, their brother or sister who had just been killed on the floor of that arena for their Christian faith. And we pulled them aside and we said, hey, they're with Jesus now. And here's what you need to know. In just a few short years, this stadium will be empty where that emperor now sits. There will not be an emperor declaring life or death. There will be a cross and it will declare God's love for the world. The empire will fall to the Christian faith your brother or sister just lost a life for. They could not have believed it. And yet that's exactly what happened. The saying of the day is Rome is forever. And within a few short centuries, through the faithful love and firmness of faith of followers of Jesus, the empire fell. And now people travel all over the world not to come see Rome. Or they travel to that place to see where Paul was, where Christians gathered because when his people hold fast to truth, stand firm in their faith, use their strength to serve and act in love, he changes the world. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for the ways that you moved powerfully then and you're still at work powerfully now. I thank you for the church in Corinth and the reminder to broken people like me that there is good news for broken people. I pray that you would help us as a church to stand firm in a culture and society that has continuing hostility towards that. I pray that you would help us to be marked as we do by love and that we would serve others around us. Father, I pray for anyone here today who doesn't know and has never received and trusted in your son as a payment for their sin, that that would change. And I pray that you would help us to be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be courageous and strong, and let everything we do be done in love. In Christ's name, amen.